Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod, and hopefully I can still remember how to do this. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's been quite a while since the last episode. Um, yeah, I'm just glad that um, I can get back to putting great creative people in front of microphones and capturing some some stories and journeys again. Um, yeah, I felt like it wasn't the easiest and I missed that the connection that I'd had with people speaking to them face to face um so decided that it was best um just to put a pause on the podcast until I could do that again um and thankfully I'm now in a position to do that um and I've got six great episodes lined up already and then hopefully we'll tack some more along um on the end um but yeah it's it's nice to be back um but yeah so this is episode 100 uh, and my guest uh, is David P. Scott, who is an artist, a photographer, a videographer, uh, and an educator. And he talks about in the podcast about why he has that sort of, and he's come to have that sort of breadth and depth of skills. Um, and the sort of comparison, he's got a really great uh, sort of analogy of, of that com- in a comparison between big and small cities. Um, and in his journey, he went from, from starting out in Edinburgh um, to moving to Dundee um, and how he sort of started out and, and built those relationships. Um, but I think b- before we go into the episode, um, I just want to say thank you to David. Um, this is a very open and honest conversation. Um, and... Uh, there's a point in David's career where he uh, went into a corporate job at a bank and as he says it it nearly killed him Um, and we talk about the anxiety and the depression that that came along with that and the situation he was in and how freelancing was the way that he found uh, to get himself out of that but also um, he goes into detail about how he deals with it um, going forward so I hope that um, if anyone else is out there struggling with, with anything similar um, they can take something from this and yeah thanks to David for, for being so open and honest about about how he how he dealt with that situation but also how he, he sort of deals with it ongoing um, so yeah it, it's an absolutely brilliant episode um, that meanders through his career um, and yeah just fascinating I, I could have talked to, to David for hours. But yeah, let's let's do it. I'm excited. Uh yeah, this is episode number one hundred with David P. Scott. So I left school in nineteen ninety-nine and I went down to Newcastle to study architecture. I was good at maths and physics and art and technical drawing, so that seemed to be the logical place to go. I think I've mentioned to you before about the um, the computers you used to get where you'd put in your skills and then it would spit out a profession. Architecture is what came out for me, so I don't think that would work in today's environment. But um, yeah, so I, I went down there, I was quite uh, young, naive, um, and failed miserably. <laughs> Dropped out after a year. I stayed down there for a while, but I um, moved back up to Glasgow in 2001 to go to Cardonnell College to do a portfolio preparation year. Um, basically, my dad had sort of laid down the law and said I had to get a degree. Um, it's like the Idol song, Mary Berry has a degree. Um, <laughs> everyone has a degree. Why don't you have a degree? Um, 
so I, I chose art um, partially because it seemed like the path of least resistance and partially because my sister was was a year ahead. She was actually um, two years younger than me, but um, with all my messing about, <laughs> she was now a year ahead. So I did uh, a year at Cardonald and then went to Dundee, Duncan or Johnston, and did the general course um, and then went into fine art. Wanted to be a painter, um, but didn't have the patience. I so think. why why at that point did you want to be a, a painter? That's quite a leap from from where you were. Well, I I think I think architecture was never really me. Um, it was you know if if you can stick it, you do your seven eight years whatever it is. It's you know it's you can make a decent living from it. Um, but once that had gone, it was just a case of, well, what do I do? And um, at that point in time, I played drums in bands and I painted. <laughs> Those are the only two things that I really did. Um, and because I'd chosen art, uh, painting seemed to be the way, it seemed to be the way to go. Um, and in second year, when you were able to specialise, um, I, I was doing painting, um, but I was always frustrated with it. Um, I just didn't have, I didn't have the patience to sit and figure out what my style was or what anything was. So I kind of drifted into collage, drawing, um, and then photography. Um, and I liked photography because it was quick and I could have an idea, I could do it. Um, Photoshop was, um, in fact, Photoshop was around when I was at school. Um, it was incredibly basic, but by that point you could... You know, you could cut stuff out and you could um, manipulate things, which I liked. I liked sort of changing reality or, or kind of twisting things. So I did a lot of that. I was still doing the music, um, playing in a band with my brother. Um, so, you know, music videos kind of came into it. So when by the time my degree show came around, it was um, black walls, photographs on the walls. Uh, there was several music videos. I made a terrible short film. Um, and lots and lots of sketchbooks. Um, so there was always lots of ideas sort of whizzing about, but no real focus, which I think may be a theme. And after after leaving art school, uh, I had worked in an off-license um, while at art school, and I went back into that. Um, I experienced the kind of falling off a cliff that most people do, and eventually became a manager. I moved to Edinburgh, and I was running uh, Threshers on Lothian Road. Uh, I did that, I was just about to say happily, but I, I wasn't happy. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't in a band at that point, but I was writing and recording music myself. Um, so I kind of went solo, so to speak. It wasn't something that um, I pushed professionally. It was just something that I did. Uh, a couple of songs got on various radio stations. I gigged. A fair bit um, around Edinburgh, Glasgow. Um, nothing, nothing too serious. But I, Threshers went into administration in two thousand and nine. I was made redundant. So then I, the, the financial crash had really bitten, and there really wasn't any work around. So I ended up working in a bar. Applied for a lot of jobs, but it fell into that one. Then I worked for Lothian Buses. Then I ended up in a bank. And I stopped the music, stopped the art, decided I was going to be a corporate, kind of, you know, work my way up the greasy pole. Um, what, did, what, 
why the change why that i mean yeah it seems like a, a mindset a sort of a life decision if you like but like, why expectations i think uh, i mean i'd gone to do a degree because of my parents expectations uh, I, I think when you get to your mid-20s there's an expectation that you'll get a proper job um i use that term i don't know I mean, these days yeah, I would I mean, say there's no such thing as a proper oh, job. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I was, like, <laughs> was it on a plate there? Like, no. What, what is a proper job? But at the time it felt like the, the, there was an expectation that it, that you would get a proper job, stop messing around with the music and, and whatnot. So just before you go into that, though, let's define like what what is a proper job? Like how, how, do you, how would you quantify that now? A proper job would be one if you sat down with your granny, uh, she wouldn't say... <laughs> Or she would take it seriously and there would be no follow-up questions when you said that that's what you did. Okay. Uh, the, I, th I think, you know, a proper job would be an architect, um, for example. It wouldn't be an artist. Um, it, you know, it would be a, an accountant. It wouldn't be, you know, a filmmaker or, or something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, so for you, like not your granny's interpretation of a proper job, like now, what, what was your... Would you, would you still quantify it like that, or is do you have another interpretation of what a proper job is now? I, I wouldn't say that there's such a thing as a proper job. I think uh, people have characteristics, and I think you need to identify what your characteristics are. So I found out through being at the bank that I'm completely unsuited to being in a corporate environment. It just does not suit me in the slightest. There's nothing about it that that is me. And that, I mean, that must have been really frustrating and hard given you'd decided to sort of put your creative practice to one side yep. and focus on this thing but then realizing that's not me that i couldn't do it <laughs> well i just i mean when i started at the bank we'd just been engaged for about sort of three or four months so you know marriage family all these kind of societal expectations were were there and you know the, there were conversations that we were having um yeah i mean there are people I think with you know a few years on me from 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 back then, there are people who you know it's incredibly important for them to have a regular income, and they're willing to make compromises in order to have that sense of security. Um, so you know there'll be people that work for you know the council, for example, or um, you know even work in you know like a, an arts environment, but they're on the you know the HR side of things, or they're on you know. Uh, and then there are other people who react so badly to that that they need to be freelance. It's the only way that they can do it, and they need to have control over their immediate, you know, environment. And you know, they're best working from home. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's trial and error, I suppose, in, in figuring that out. I always thought of it as you know, you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, and it just it was never ever going to fit. Uh, but at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do. And um, yeah, I, I I went for it. I mean, that's that would have been two thousand and ten, so it's twelve years ago now. Um, and you know, a lot's changed since then. Um, more so after the pandemic, I see a lot of people are are coming to the same realizations that perhaps I did. You know, back then, you know, people moving out from the city or saying. You know, they don't want to live in a cramped flat in London. They would rather have, you know, a back garden or, or, or whatnot. People are kind of reevaluating their um, 
So it's their expectations of life and what it takes to be happy or to be content. Uh, and that's something that was forced upon me back then. Um, so how did you deal with that? So you're in the, the situation where you know or you come to the realisation that this is not you, this is not for you. But how do you how did you deal with that? Oh, that's, that, no, that's, that's interesting because that, I suppose that gets to the next point of interest because I didn't know. And so I forced myself to toe the line. I ended up with a lot of disciplinaries. I ended up um, getting into a lot of trouble because um, I think when you can't express yourself and when you don't understand why it is that you can't do what everyone else around you is doing, you become incredibly frustrated, you become very, very angry. And if you don't have the words or the knowledge or the self-awareness to see what's happening, it kind of... It all becomes internalised, and uh, I mean, I had a breakdown, so I um, I broke down at work and was signed off with stress. Was diagnosed with severe anxiety and depression. Um, now that had been an underlying sort of undiagnosed thing, uh, so it wasn't purely the bank's fault, but it, the, the bank is, I suppose, the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, so I was signed off for about six months, and I was in a pretty dark place and knew within myself that I couldn't go back. And um, yeah, I, I suppose there was, a, there was a point where my dad and my wife said, you can't go back to the bank, there aren't many jobs around, um, why don't you go freelance? And it just seemed like the least worst option. Um, I had- I mean, that's, that's quite a big departure, right? Huge, that's, huge. It's not just like, Oh, well, that didn't work. You try this. It's not yeah. like the natural stepping stone, right? But I think I think what both of them saw was that I was at my happiest when I'd started taking photographs again uh, while I, I was at the bank, um, purely because, um, in fact, to this day, when I was working in a call centre in an entry-level position at a bank, that's the most money I've ever earned, <laughs> ever. <laughs> Um, so I had I had a little bit of uh, sort of cash that I could, you know, buy a, a semi decent camera. Um, I could buy a couple of lenses. I was experimenting, um, and wh when I was at art school, like there was no formal photographic training at Duncan or Johnston. So I went through my entire degree without knowing what an aperture was. Um, you know, I was just using point and shoot digital cameras. It was about the ideas as far as I was concerned. It wasn't about the technique. So when I was at the bank, I'd started teaching myself um, how to how to take photos properly and you know what ISO was, what aperture was, what shutter speed was and how they all sort of interacted. Um, you know, the exposure triangle, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there was a guy um, who worked at the bank. He left shortly after I joined, but he went on to be um, the booker of bands and whatnot at the Electric Circus, which was a venue in Edinburgh, a guy called John Paul Mason. And he knew that I took photographs and uh, he invited me down and I shot quite a few gigs there before I left. So I had been taking photos and I suppose my dad and my wife knew that I was at my happiest when I was making stuff. I mean, you don't write and record nine albums on your own <laughs> without, you know, getting something from it. So, um, yeah, a big jump, but... I don't know. I, I guess when you're when you're so devastated by a diagnosis and by a, a you know a situation, 
um, you know, when anxiety is severe and you don't have any way to cope with it, it, it is nowhere to go. So it just stays in, and it um, it paralyzes you almost. You, you know, you kind of fall into yourself and you become a shell, which can be quite frightening to see. Um, and the um, I mean, mental health care in Scotland has is you know it's bad just now. Um, it was even worse back then. Um, you know, when I was first diagnosed, it was it was called a, a chemical imbalance in your brain, which is which is something that's just not really it's not kind of seen in those terms anymore. Um, and that's the difference twelve years twelve years makes. So there was a long wait for therapy. Um, medication is a is a stopgap. Um, so the, it was cognitive behavioural therapy that taught me how to, I suppose, deal with things or come up with sort of coping strategies. I've gone through many rounds of it. <laughs> um, I've had many breakdowns since, built myself back up. But from that point to now, um, it's I mean, it's 10, 10 years or so since I went freelance. Um, I guess you, you get the knowledge and you get the, you know, the understanding of this is the way that you work best. And if I have a bad day as a freelancer, it's nowhere near as bad as it would have been if I was doing something else um, or if I was still at the bank. Um, so you can handle a lot when you know that that's your situation. You can handle not having any money. You can handle, um, you know, invoices not being paid or, you know, all the nonsense that we, we deal with when you run your own business. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's I suppose that's how it started. So, so how do you... Because for, for me, I feel like you... So you saw this the freelancing as this escape, this opportunity to take on what you love doing and, and make it your career and take control of that. That makes it sound romantic, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Broadly speaking, but, yes. But I mean, it, because for... <laughs> For me and, and from other people that I've spoken to, um, there can be the opposite feeling. So there can be the fear, the anxiety that comes with the unknown of yep. of making that leap. Whereas you talk about it as this real positive and this real, um, yeah, is this this turning point? I suppose without going too deep into it, the um, the alternative was worse. Um, so the alternative nearly killed me. Um, so, you know, your back's against a, you know, a sheer drop. Where else do you go? Well, you grab the only thing that's there and freelancing was there. Um, so I, I went for it. Um, it was almost like I was given permission because, um, you know, my dad had to help me out. My wife had to help me out. Um, you know, um, we didn't go on holiday for years because, you know, I just wasn't earning enough money. And I mean, that's a huge commitment and you know, from Pamela's point of view. Um, so yeah, it was. Yeah, the alternative was worse. So. So, so, so starting out, how how did you go about building your reputation, your I suppose your freelance career from there? Yeah, shoot for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's that old joke about exposure. You know, you can't pay your rent with exposure. People die of exposure. Um, yeah, I mean, there was places like the Skinny, for example, that. Um, you know, you could you could shoot for free. I was still shooting at the Electric Circus, so I built a portfolio up um, predominantly of music stuff because I understood I understood music. I'd been in bands. I I, I knew how it worked. I enjoyed it. Um, 
I um, I photographed everything and anything you would you know you would create things you know you would shoot friends and um, you know set it up as if it was a you know a formal shoot get you know somebody that you know to wear a suit and you know take a corporate portrait uh, practice your techniques um, I've always something that I've always done um, has been to have I have the stuff that I know that I can do I have my um, you know, I can take a portrait, I can photograph a gig, um, you know, I can cover an event, uh, but then you always have the stuff that you you do that you're not 100% sure at, um, and those are the things that you do for free, or those are the things that you do for a cut price rate, or you, you know, you help a mate out. So once I'd kind of built up a reputation for photography, I started doing video. Um, and it was only really when photography and video were working side by side that I earned enough to, um, you know, to get by and to officially pay tax and all, you know, all these <laughs> uh, proper business things. Um, the video came about through Creative Edinburgh. So I joined Creative Edinburgh. I found them to be a great help um, in terms of meeting people uh, and getting work. They actually hired me on my first video job. They knew that I'd been experimenting with it and they needed someone, you know, last minute, I think, you know, somebody had dropped out or something like that and they needed someone to come along. That's another thing when you're starting out um, uh, is to always be ready. Um, so much of the breaks that I got were because somebody had pulled out and they needed someone last minute. So, you know, when the phone rings at six o'clock at night and you're watching the news, having your dinner and they say, can you be in town in, you know, half an hour and cover this event, you go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good piece of advice for sure. Um, and obviously that's not, that's not always possible and that helps when you're potentially like at the early start of your career when you have less commitments. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, being able to, to, to react to making sure that your skills are up to speed. Um, you know, so like if you if you predominantly work with natural light, for example, as a photographer, um, learn flash. You might not like it um, in terms of the aesthetic. It might not fit your personal work, but learn it. Um, always be looking for the things that, um, you know, the little things that you don't have. Uh, and there are many skills that I taught myself that I just, you know, grew to dislike. You know, like wedding photography, for example. Um, that, alongside video, was I. I saw that as a big thing. Um, you know, because you know you can earn four figures on a day. You know, it turns out that it's much, much more than a day's work. But you know, it's a lot of money to, especially someone who's who's kind of starting out. But um, you know, over time, I, I found that I just didn't enjoy the process of of getting the work. I, I hated wedding fairs. I hated selling myself as if I was a you know a commodity or, or, or something like that. It just really wasn't who I was. So I I stopped doing it. Um, but you can only really know if you've if you've done it, I suppose. Um, and you know, in Ed in Edinburgh, it was possible to. To be a photographer and videographer, um, and earn enough to 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 to, to get by. Um, in they, they say in London you can specialise in the you know the the, the the most specific thing. In Edinburgh you have to be more of a generalist. And when we when we moved to Dundee, um, you know I had to add other things on. 
um, as well as photography and video. Um, it's, it's a really, I've never heard it described like that, but it makes perfect sense. Like this sort of um, expanding pyramid of yeah. skills. And I think as, as you say, in the cities where the creative communities are smaller, then there are, there are less people to call upon. And I think often half the battle, especially in the start of your career, is just being the, the person at the front of someone's mm-hmm. mind. So they go, oh, I need this bit of photography, design, illustration, whatever, and then go, and it might be the tweet that someone saw last mm-hmm. night. It might be an email that came in. It might be a conversation that happened at a, an event, which has been very few and far between in the last two years, which mm-hmm. has seen a massive shift in, in the ability to get that sort of passive work and have those sorts of conversations. And that's been really, like, really difficult. And, and that's not something you can, you can't bump into someone on Zoom. It's not really how it works. No, but I, th- it I love doesn't. that analogy of this sort of, um, yeah, the sort of broadening of the skill sets as the creative communities get like, yeah. smaller and tighter knit. Yeah, I think I, I suppose it, um, it it goes out into all sorts of things. I mean, in Edinburgh, uh, the the places where you would meet people, it was all very. Um, well, it was more specific than in Dundee. I mean, the creative industries in Dundee. If you go to two events, you'll see broadly a similar, you know, the same kind of people. Um, and, you know, you may not see exactly the same people, but the people that you do see will know the people that you saw at the previous one. Um, so everything is connected. Whereas in Edinburgh, you know, you could, um, I found networking there was very transactional. It was very, um, it was difficult to meet people who weren't in your field. You know, so you'd introduce yourself as a photographer and people would go, oh, another one, and kind of move on, <laughs> you know. You would never, ever find yourself in a room where you were the only photographer. Um, if you were in single figures, you were doing well. Um, and so, I mean, that breeds competition and, you know, the it's the opposite of how I like to work. I like to, um, I mean, in Dundee, I find that I can, I just talk about what I'm interested in. Uh, I talk about... You know that thing that I'm doing that I'm not 100% sure on that I'm teaching myself that I'm um, you know at the moment it's it's music I'm I'm doing a lot with sort of synthesizers modular synthesis all this kind of stuff I'm not 100% sure where it's going I'm not 100% sure of what I'm doing but I'm really into it and you know that's the thing that's you know slightly beyond me that keeps me kind of kind of moving and so I like to, I, you know I speak to everyone about it. It, it you know it used to be um, I was doing a lot of upcycling um sort of working with wood um i've a job this week where um through creative dundee two people were speaking and one was looking for someone to do a workshop where they were you know looking to recycle wood it's like who do you know that does education workshops and also upcycles with found material and you know it was clear that um creative dundee was like well david does that um, and that's just because it's you know it's what you're into, it's what you're talking about. And Dundee is a great place for for those sort of casual conversations. And so networking, it's it's not networking. It's um, I suppose they're they're just friendly relationships that are made through work. Um, and you know you you talk about what you're into, they talk about what you're into, and um, you know you try and help each other out. Whereas Edinburgh, and I imagine London would be incredibly sort of niche and 
uh, transactional. Edinburgh was much, much more transactional. And, and my wife and I both found it quite difficult. Was Dundee suits are kind of more laid back. You know, never wear a suit type <laughs> way of doing business. Well, I suppose yeah, you've made the, in your journey, you've made the move from Edinburgh yeah. to Dundee. And then you've obviously had to then start as you say like re- like building those relationships with the creative community so how did you how did you do that after a move from from another city yeah so we, i mean in edinburgh we were we were essentially priced out of where we were so we lived in wrestlerig which is uh, right next to leith it's, it's not real leith i think the, the locals would pull you up if you said it was leith but it's it's next to leith links um but uh we we couldn't afford to stay there anymore and um at that point in time, Pamela's dad was very ill, um, so we, you know, we wanted to be nearer. Um, it was he was in our, our broth, so it was a, it was quite a long round trip to uh, to visit. So we decided to move back, uh, building the business. Um, and again, I naively thought it would be easier than it was. I thought I would send out a few emails, um, you know, put together a wee promotional thing, and you know, people would be battering down my door but they didn't <laughs> there was silence um because i hadn't you know i i mean a random name pops up in your inbox i mean what what, what are you going to do you need to you need to build things up you need to speak to people so i joined creative dundee has the amps network so i joined that um I did a lot of work traveling through to edinburgh so i still had quite a lot of clients um though i did find that over time because I wasn't meeting these people and I wasn't in the mix, um, they slowly kind of moved on to to other other folks. Um, and I was still doing jobs in, in Edinburgh right up until the pandemic started. Um, but I think the pandemic's pretty much killed. I've had one client that I did work for in Edinburgh who's you know been in touch since things started to open up again. Um, and that's from. Um, you know, there was there was a lot more than one <laughs> uh, when I was when I was there. Um, so Cre- Creative Dundee was was integral because Creative Edinburgh had been um, had been so important in Edinburgh. I, I kind of felt that join Creative Dundee, see what happens. Um, and so I did bits and bobs. I did their um, Creative Leadership Program Fabric in twenty was it nine eighteen or nineteen? I can't remember. Um, and at, at that point, um, it had been incredibly difficult to to get work here, and I had started applying for jobs, part time jobs, even full time jobs. I applied for over fifty, didn't get anything, um, because I'd been freelancing for quite a while by then. So the you know my CV was all you know freelance work, um, and. You know, people aren't going to take a punt on that when you've got, you know, an awful lot of applications. So um, I did the, the creative leadership thing um, and was quite low. Um, I'd had a sort of relapse with the anxiety and depression, so I wasn't I wasn't doing so well. Um, but it was it was quite an inspiring course to do. I to this day, I'm not 100 percent sure why I applied. It just seemed like. Because I don't see myself, you know, I'm not a leader. I, you know, I, that's not quite my thing. But I don't know. It just seemed like I don't know, I'd meet interesting people, and 
I, I took a chance and one of the, the days we went up to Aelith to the um to the Eco Museum up there and the organizers were talk they did a talk and there was various things, but they talked a lot about serendipity, about just letting things happen and just seeing how things pan out. And that was the start of kind of chance and just chance encounters and not letting you know your anxieties and your worries kind of get to you. My sister used to be a cancer nurse. She used to do the at the Royal Marston in London. She used to administer chemotherapy and stuff, and she would always talk about um, you know she would have so many patients who you know we talk about you know life and you know regrets and you know no one ever it's a cliche but no one ever regrets you know you know well i mean work it can just you know it can disappear and you know it all kind of comes to nothing the, the, i suppose the good stuff is family is friends is you know the you know the, the stereotypical important things um but worrying about where the work's going to come from or what it just it doesn't do you any good it's just it's wasted energy so i kind of just thought i would just you know let things happen and that's when i realized that in dundee if you you know you i suppose you're you're interested and you you know you just see what's happening and, and just you know follow your instincts and see what happens um I, I mean i think like i can totally relate to the that some of the anxiety around where will the next project yeah. come from where like how are we gonna like keep things going and then and it is it comes in waves and uh like i think it was always lyle who said to me just appreciate the quiet times yeah yeah um but it takes a long time to get to that point where to have confidence in your relationships your networks yep. that you have enough clients enough contacts that, that something will come in through the inbox you will bump into someone in the street you will see someone at an event and then work will come yeah there's um i, I mean in the creative industries imposter syndrome is a, is, a, is a huge thing so that that's always going to feed your anxiety um when I started out, I always felt that um, I was, you know, I was hustling people for for something, or I was asking people for something. Um, I, you know, I was I wasn't bringing anything to the table because you know there were lots of photographers, and you know if I didn't do the job, someone else would do the job equally well, maybe even better. Um, and it, you know, it's only you know recently when I've realised you know. I suppose the range of things that I can do that I'm actually bringing something to the table and you can have confidence in yourself and you know your ability to um you know to film something competently um you know maybe even with some skill <laughs> or to you know to take a workshop and um to know that there are clients that you have that um you know they need someone to do this or they need someone to run this project or to to document this event, and you know that you're bringing something to the table. So, so when you say that that you that you, you have that confidence that you know that you're bringing something to the yeah. table, what is it that you bring? That's an interesting question. What do I bring? Um, 
I I suppose it's a it's a, it's a breadth a breadth of knowledge on lots of different areas, um, all based around creativity. So, um, you have photography and video, which is what I started with. Um, with video, you need music. So, you know, I developed my skills with music. Um, when I moved to Dundee, I found education was something that there was, you know, there was opportunities there. Um, so I, um, Tayside Healthcare Arts Trust, the DCA, the McManus, uh, you know, I've done workshops there, I've led groups there. Um, so I, I suppose a knowledge of fine art, um, printmaking techniques, uh, painting, um, you know, I lead a photography group at the moment and, you know, we cover everything from colour theory to compositional theory. Uh, to technical skills, um, yeah. So all 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 that kind of stuff. You've got equipment. Um, you know how to best set up microphones. How to um, you know film stuff, record stuff. How to prepare a canvas. It is, I suppose it's just stuff that you you kind of pick up, and um, so you're you're bringing all of that to the table. Um, also your personality, your uh, your way of dealing with people, um, your way of um, interacting, especially in education when you're, you know, you're working with uh, perhaps vulnerable groups or, or, you know, something like that. How do you speak to people? How do you get people involved? How do you read the room? How do you, you know, notice who's struggling to, you know, perhaps communicate or to contribute? How do you bring them in? All these kind of things. <laughs> It's lots of stuff. Uh, I mean, I recently applied for funding for something and I've applied on several previous occasions and I've always been rejected because the um, I've applied for different avenues of what it is I do and they always say that, no, you're not that, you're this other thing. So, you know, you apply for painting and they say, no, you're not a painter, you're a photographer. <laughs> and I applied for video this time and it's like, no, you're not a visual artist, you're a commercial artist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so because I have such a broad range of skills, it's um, it's difficult to. But I think that's you know there's the cliche term portfolio career, but that's what we all are these days. We all do lots of different things, especially in a city like Dundee. Um, yeah, and and I think there's a couple of things that drive that. Um, one of them is is necessity, mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing is sort of curiosity and exploration, and I think there's that. Like in a lot of people that I've chatted to, they, they they have this constant drive to just try new things and play and go, oh, what's that thing? Can I have a go at that? Yep. Um, and you might, you're never going to do that full time, but you might bring that little bit of something or a little bit of learning or a little bit of technique or something that actually comes into your day to day. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know how teaching has changed in the school environment. Um, I mean, that kind of teaching isn't isn't something I've done it's always been sort of gallery based or community based but uh, young people that I speak to or work with these days seem to be a lot more comfortable with um you know a portfolio career or you know even you know you pick up a camera you're you know you can take a photo but you know when I was starting out you wouldn't call yourself a professional photographer but you know, these days, young people seem to be quite comfortable to just give themselves the term and, you know, fake it till you make it. And I think that's fantastic because that's literally what I did. Um, but I had all this angst about proper jobs. And, um, and you know, n none of that really matters. Um, you know, anybody can take 
a good photograph. Um, not as many people can guarantee you that they will take a good photograph when they come in, but a lot can. Um, and those that can't and that are interested can practice until they can. Um, so why shouldn't you call yourself a photographer and just crack on with it? Uh, why should you <laughs> cripple yourself with you know anxiety about nothing that matters? <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, off the back of that, do you, like what is your style? Obviously, you work across lots of different disciplines. Yep. Um, but yeah, do you feel that you have a style that sort of transcends those? Um, yes. Um, when I wrote lyrics, uh, I liked to, to boil things down to... Um, you know, get rid of as many words as possible until you had the fewest number of words to say what it is that you wanted to say. That makes it sound like the songs were really good. Um, I don't know if they were, but um, that kind of editing, it, it, that never left me. Um, with photography and video, you're constantly editing. So you'll, you know, you'll take, you know, two photos for every one that you use, or you'll take three for every one that you use. If it's a bad day, you'll take five for every one that you use. How do you choose the four that you're throwing away and the one that you're keeping. Um, so editing and simplifying um, is part of, of what I do. I also like to keep as low a profile as possible. Um, I'm very uncomfortable when people in any line of work try to, um, not force, but try to put themselves into a situation and I suppose expect or try and change the situation to reflect them. I like to just let the situation breathe, let the event just go on and you know I can sort of skirt around the corners of it I think. So uh, you know it's I suppose it's I'm not explaining it very well but it's it's a technique or it's a way of working that served me quite well for both the education, the workshops, but also um, filming people who perhaps don't want to be filmed or are uncomfortable being filmed. Um, if you come in with all the gear and you know you create this big massive whirlwind around what you're doing and you're the important filmmaker and you know everybody should be so impressed by you, you're never ever going to get someone who's shy to feel comfortable because they're going to be overawed by you know because I'm I'm quite shy myself and that's how I would feel. Um, so I like to um, I like to speak to people um, you know without even taking the cameras out the back. Uh, I did um, a film with the McManus where I was documenting various different groups um, as part of their artist rooms project. And the first session that I did with each group, I did a show and tell where I showed them the camera, the lenses, I showed them some of my work, spoke about what it was I did, asked answered questions. I didn't take a single photograph, didn't film anything. It was just literally, this is me, this is the equipment I'll be using. Um, do you have any questions? Um, I'll see you next week type thing. Uh, so taking time to, um, but not making people feel like they have to be something that they're not. Um, in terms of the visual content, um, I try to keep things, I suppose, as natural as possible.
possible so I tend not to use a lot of lights with events I'll use flash but I'll use flash in a way where it's bounced off the ceiling or a wall in order to kind of make it look as natural as possible um, I like to um, ask as few questions as possible when I'm doing interviews so I tend to you know if I'm doing interviews where I'm interviewing you know five six ten people i'll ask them the same questions and i'll try and keep it at, you know two questions three questions trying to not over complicate things um i like a clean frame uh leading lines um i like angles um my paintings are abstract but they're very simplified shapes um i use paint straight out of the tube so it's um you know i'm not mixing colors keeping things nice and simple. Um, I take a long time to kind of whittle a composition down to its constituent parts. Yeah, I also want to touch on, you sort of briefly did, but um, I want to go a little bit more in depth into the technology side of things, yeah. like the, the kit, because um, photography and audio, they're like total wormholes you can go down and spend mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and obsess over um the specs and the latest and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. But what's your approach? What's your relationship with the, the kit that you have and that you use? Uh, well, they say the best camera that you can have is the one you have in your hand. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> my brother and I have a similar approach to equipment. Um, we'll uh, try stuff out. We'll buy stuff. Um, and then the stuff that we don't we don't click with, we sell. Um, so it's it's like a conveyor belt, um, you know. So at, at the moment, I'm actually clearing out my studio. There are five or six quite expensive pieces that I I just don't use. Um, it, things that um, don't spark joy. <laughs> um, you know, you need to trust your tools. Um, and so if, you know, you have a camera or you, you have a musical instrument, every time you pick it up, you kind of, you know, oh, it's just, you know, it's difficult to use or it's, um, you know, it has to go because, you know, you, you want to, you know, with cameras, I've got, I've had lots and lots of lenses, possibly even over a hundred. Um, I've tried lots of different stuff from, you know, film cameras, digital cameras, uh, DSLRs, um, mirrorless. Um, at the moment, I have two cameras, three lenses. That's it, two flashes. That's all I have. It's taken me 10 years to have that little um, stuff um, with with the photography. And I use them for video as well. Um, with the video, I have a couple of, um, you know, I like I have a camera cage. You've obviously got your microphones and stuff. Um, I've whittled the microphones down, so I've got a shotgun mic, two lavalier microphones for interviews, and I have a few condenser mics that I use like for bigger events that I'll kind of put around strategically. Um, I've not had as many microphones as I've had lenses, but <laughs> I've had quite a few. Um, yeah, it just takes time to, to, to figure it out, and you're always thinking that you need you know, the, the next thing or the, um, you know, the, I suppose the newest thing, but um, I don't know, the, the longer I do it, the less inclined I am to to follow that path. I do like read, reading reviews. I like to, you know, research. Um, 
I suppose you need to have a clear idea of what it is that you're looking to do. Um, you know, for example, with music, when I was doing music 10 years ago, um, it was very song based. Uh, you know, you'd program out your drums. It was, you know, a, a recognizable drum pattern, all that kind of stuff. I'm not really interested in doing that anymore. So it's, it's what forms of music making can you do that allow you to kind of break free from that verse, chorus, verse, chorus type thing. So granular synthesis, taking um, audio and breaking it down into grains, small parts, and then bringing it back together in a different way. Or, um, you know, I'm not really interested in programming drums properly anymore. So um, using things like um, uh, Euclidean rhythms, where you're using algorithms to create um, rhythm patterns, polyrhythms, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, just I, I suppose pushing it, um, figuring out what it is that you want to do, then looking for the tools that do that best. Uh, one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic in terms of gear is because everyone's used Zoom, the Zoom aesthetic, which is this low resolution <laughs> fuzzy camera that's badly lit, has it's become accepted. Um, and so you can incorporate, I mean, I've, I've done videos, several videos, in fact, where I've incorporated um, Zoom footage into, you know, a proper film piece. So you have uh, 4K footage sitting right next to this really crappy <laughs> 720 kind of Zoom footage. Um, but then that opens up mobile phones. So um, I'm working on a project just now where you know, the participants are, you know, they can they can give me their own footage. Um and you know that gets that gets put into the mix. So because that aesthetic has been well widely accepted, it opens up um lots of different avenues and it you know, it lowers the barrier of entry. Um I mean when I was at college it was film photography and that's expensive and it's time consuming and you know working in a dark room is uh, you know it can be kind of tedious and grim <laughs> um but then when digital cameras got cheap enough you know the barrier of entry was lowered and i think now with phones being put there i spoke to um i'm a member of a roan club and there is a documentary maker who does stuff for the bbc and he was telling me that he shoots broadcast quality footage on his iPhone. So that's where we're at just now. So anyone can do it, quite literally. Um, anyone can do it. Yeah, I mean, an iPhone is not cheap these days, but... <laughs> it's not, but it's also not, uh, you know, 20 grand, <laughs> you know? Um, and I mean, that's the other thing about gear is when I started, it's like, oh, I'll never be able to afford stuff like that. And, you know, you, you slowly get up in increments. Um, and, you know, you build it up and I don't know, I, I think if if a piece of equipment is important to your work, then it's important that you build your business around being able to get that piece of equipment. Um, I mean, anyone who works in the creative industries will have, you know, a piece of kit that costs, you know, four figures, uh, you know, whether it's an, you know, a, an iPad or a, you know, a MacBook or, or, or whatnot, um, you know, 
it, this stuff's expensive. Um, so you you build your business in a way that you know you're charging your clients enough so that you can then invest in yourself and invest. Um, you know, five five hundred pounds for a lens or a thousand pounds for a lens is a lot for an amateur because you're not um, you're you know you're not ever going to make that back. A thousand pounds, you can make that back in three days' work. Um, you know, and that's at artist union rates. Um, if you've got experience, you can probably charge more. Um, so, you know, it's 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 all relative. Yeah, and it, I think it's yeah, it's that value that that piece adds. Yeah. Um Plus, you think about like for me the laptop Mac, like yep. it, it's it's not really negotiable now, um, and yeah, the amount of hours that you spend on that versus mm-hmm. the cost. So if you think about the like it would be pennies per per hour, mm-hmm. probably even less than that by the time you you're five years down the line that it's then given up the ghost. Um, and it is that like it's it's those pieces of like of quality that that make your work what it is. Yep. Um, and as you say, like you need to invest in that to 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 make your your practice well as easy, but also as as high quality as as possible. Yeah, I mean it, it's like that with uh, with software. When Adobe went to the subscription model, it's like well you could do it with other pieces of software, but think of how fast you are with like Premiere Pro or Photoshop. You know, you know all the shortcuts. You can just you know you can you know it's like breathing to to, to you know to run a photo or a video through it. Um, can you be? Can, do you have the time to learn some other piece of software? So we all sign up and pay our, you know, fifty quid a month or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean that. <laughs> like we were students, that's why you all had the the cracked versions, yes. and Adobe didn't really care because they know if you get you hooked on that software, yeah, you're then enough to pay the license when you become yeah. a professional. So so true. Industry, yeah, so. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I'm still not a big fan of the monopoly that Adobe sort of now has on the. No. On the industry, and I, there are competitors and other things coming in, but there's nothing as quite all-consuming. Um, so just before we finish up, just a couple of questions. Um, first one is about your website. Yes, I was going to say the website formerly known as Burnbox, um, but there's kind of. Do you want to explain a little bit about the? I suppose that you used to have two websites. I did. Yes. Yes. Um, Burnbox davidpscott.com mm-hmm. is that right um but like the i'm interested to know where the the burn box comes from and the why there was two and then now there's there's not so what's happened yeah so it was burnbox.studio was the it was the website um so when we moved to dundee um i didn't have as much work as i, I used to i was going through to edinburgh for some work but struggling to get work in dundee so I, I used the time, like you said, Lyle says, you know, enjoy the quiet time, you know, do something constructive. So I, I, I was up, upcycling furniture, painting tables and stuff. Um, I started painting, uh, well, first canvas boards. In fact, it was wood first, then canvas boards, then proper canvases. Um, but I didn't really have the confidence to say, you know, I'm a visual artist or, or anything like that. So I needed somewhere to put it um, because I, I wanted it to be out there because if it was out there, then I had, you know, I had something to, I suppose, something to continue. Whereas if I didn't do anything with it, it would just kind of fall by the wayside. Um, so I came up with Burnbox. Uh, so Burnbox, um, 
I, I like detectives, novels, spy novels, that kind of stuff. I like to read trash, basically, to relax. I like to read serious stuff too, but um, I, I love like John le Carre, um, and he has a book called The Perfect Spy. And he coined a term called uh, the term burn box. So a burn box is something that the embassy official has. So it's a box that you put important documents in. And if you are under threat, the enemy is close by, you can press a button and it will incinerate everything that's in it. And so I like this Schrodinger's cat type thing that I created a website called Burnbox that I would put this artwork that I wasn't 100% sure about. But it was important to me to acknowledge it. So I, I put it all on this site. And when I did, I didn't know if it would stay there or if I would just burn it. Um, and as it turns out, it took four years because I just retired that site last month. Um, and the reason I retired it was because over the four years, um, I kind of built up the practice um, and it got to a point where I was calling myself an artist and photographer. But I didn't really feel right because I was doing all this audio work. I had a, you know, a, a sound piece in the McManus. Um, you know, I'd, I'd done audio work with you. Um, audio is such a fundamental part of video. Artist photographer doesn't cover the video. It also doesn't cover the education that I was doing because there's, you know, I was working with all these galleries, and I just realised this year, really, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, that I was an artist. Really, that's that's kind of what I did. An artist. I have various specialities. Um, I suppose I make most of my money, or used to at least make most of my money from photography and video. Um, but because my painting uh, and printmaking had got to a point where I felt it was of a standard. Uh, I had an exhibition last year with Nicola Wiltshire, who actually, um, it's important to say, you know, when you're talking about advice for people coming up, I worked with her at the McManus as a um, an artist tutor when I just started the Burnbox site. And I mentioned, you know, talking about what I was into and what I was working on, what was slightly out of reach and I wasn't too sure that I could actually do. I had mentioned that I was a painter um, and she's a, a beautiful painter. Um, so I gave her the website address and that evening she got back with a whole load of feedback. Uh, a huge email kind of going into what she liked, what she did, you know, thought I could improve on. Uh, so, you know, reaching out to people who are ahead of you on the curve and asking their opinion. Um, you know, I've, I've not met anyone who, you know, doesn't want to help or, or and, you know, you know, sometimes you email people. I emailed a lot of people when I moved to Dundee and none of them got back to me. You know, it's no... It's no big deal if they don't, but um, asking an opinion is, is important. So yeah, that's where Brombox came from. Uh, and sadly, it is no more. It's just davidpscott.com now. <laughs> and the last question, is there anything that you could recommend that you've been listening to, watching or reading recently? Oh, um, so watching their... Um, I always watch the arts documentaries on the BBC. Uh, Imagine um, is on at the moment. It has some good ones. Uh, Storyville, uh, there's a new series of Storyville going on. There's one coming up, I think, about um, truffle hunting dogs, which I'm very much looking forward to as someone who has three dogs. Uh, listening to um, 
Nils Fram um, is a, a, a big um, influence. Uh, Rival Consoles, his recent album um, is Overflow, um, which was done in collaboration with dancers. So um, he used um, movement to uh, modulate the you know the electronic instruments, which I find fascinating. Um, there's a an awful lot of stuff on Instagram and YouTube when it comes to electronic music, which is which is fascinating. Um, proper wormholes that you can kind of get sucked into. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tripping by Nils Fram actually. If you if you want a record to to check out, I'd recommend that. And you can also watch the concert video on uh, Mubi, which is the the kind of art film, art house cinema type streaming platform. Cool. Um, obviously, you mentioned davidpscott.com, but yes. is there anywhere else that people can find you? I'm on Instagram uh, at davidpeterscott. That's great. Thanks very much. Pleasure. So, uh, thanks very much to David for doing that. And then, as I said at the start, I mean, um, thank you to him for being so open and honest about um, his depression, his anxiety, um, and and how he deals with that. And hopefully, that that insight, that sharing, that that story, that that journey can can help people who may be in a similar situation or, or feel have had similar feelings um yeah and i mean there's there's so many great bits in that the, the chat um, and the, the analogy of the the scale of the creative community uh, versus the, the sort of breadth and depth of your skills i think it's it's something i'd never really considered um but it, it is it's so true and it makes so much sense and i think um, in Dundee you can absolutely be a generalist and it is to your advantage to, to be much more of a generalist and sort of play and explore new skills and there is the ability to, to, to try new things and create new collaborations within that and I think yeah, that like Dundee is perfectly set up as a, as a community, as a creative community to, to do that but as I said in the episode like I think we've 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 lost those sort of in-person meetings, those chance happenings, those sort of um, the relationships that you build, whether it's going along to events, whether it's going to have a coffee with someone. Um, and what I really hope for the future is that they, they come back as soon as possible um, and that we are able to sort of build on that that again. Um, because, yeah, the, the, there's so much that, that happens in that respect that you maybe don't realise. Um, and it's only sort of when you take that away that you, you do... Um, so yeah, I mean that's it for for this week's episode. Um, for those of you who have made it to the end, um, next week's guest is going to be Leonie Bell, um, who is the director of DNA Dundee. Um, yeah, a really insightful chat into um, her journey, which is is fascinating, is is long and varied, and a bit about. Um, her ambitions uh, for the space, for the building, um, for the team there. Um, so yeah, another another really good chat. So yeah, tune in next week for for that. Um, and so if you do want to keep up to date with the podcast, um, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram, and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Still remembered it. Um, you can also subscribe on um, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the things, all the places that you get podcasts will be there. Um, but yeah, until next week, bye.